This episode of the Arbitration Station podcast is brought to you by MB Kemp LLP. MB Kemp is a nimble, adaptable, and current international law practice with strong east-west links based in London, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and Hong Kong. For more information, visit www.kempllp.com or visit us on LinkedIn at Kemp LLP. Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gaillard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Brian Kodak. And I'm Sadia Bhatti. And we are your two co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast covering both commercial and investment arbitration, 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world and 1% missing Joel. 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 (laughs) We miss you. Do we? Do we? (laughs) Now is our chance, Sadia. I don't know. Let's see. I don't know. It's okay for now. Let's see see how the episode goes and then we'll decide whether we need him to come back. All right. Yeah. Joel is in Marseille, but where in the world are you, Sadia? I'm in London, which has been a little bit unusual in the past couple of weeks, but I am here now. What about (laughs) you? Where are you? Also in London as well, but soon to go to Italy for some well-needed reprieve. Um, It'll be, I'm checking the weather every day and it seems to be nice. So that will be exciting. Very minimal restrictions, a small form I had to fill out. You, as you probably seen the traveling that you're about to do in the near future is much different. I actually, I also just came back from Madrid and it was very sunny and it was beautiful and it's nice to get away. It's nice to travel again now. I feel like, yeah. We're almost back. We are. I mean, I didn't feel any difference apart from constantly wearing your mask all the time. Be careful. But traveling is back. Yes. Back. Did they they still have a mask mandate in Madrid? I don't know if there's a mandate, but I saw everybody wearing it. I mean, most of the time we were outside. So people don't wear it outside. But um, inside, yeah, people wear it. Absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, it's a city where you are outside drinking, eating. So it's really nice. (laughs) Well, after Paris Arbitration Week, I think we all agree that it's just over. Yes, Um, yes. Speaking of Arbitration Weeks, London will be rivaling Paris Arbitration Week with their London International Disputes Week of 2022. Mm -hmm. That starts on the 9th of May. Um, You probably haven't, like, started looking into all the panels and everything. but I Not yet. I have there there's gonna be a huge ball, an, an international arbitration ball on Wednesday or something like that. Oh wow, okay. Um I should know about that. We're supposed to be partners of that. <laughs> I just <laughs> Oh, you <laughs> are. Are you a member? Is Gina member? Yeah, 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 yeah. We are, yeah. Oh, good for you. Uh, <laughs> I see that uh Joel Arbitration Chambers is also um a member. They're hosting oh, okay. a panel. Perfect. Um what I also what I often found with London International Disputes Week is because it is general between international arbitration and litigation. So, and actually I think um, uh, investigation as well is in there, Mm -hmm. but um, there's going to be, I think it does. We tend to find our own, don't we? In these types of environments, we tend to flock to each other, Um, but that should be interesting. So everyone should sign up for that. Um, 
There's been a few French cases in the news. Oui. Oui. You guys oui. are becoming the relevant. <laughs> yeah. Oh, becoming? Excuse me. <laughs> Excusez-moi. Excusez-moi. And that's exactly what the courts are saying. They're saying, excusez-moi. Excusez-moi. Attends. In, uh, in one of the substantive segments that we are having today, right? We're yes. We're speaking about the latest court of appeals decision where they go, they literally say, excusez-moi. <laughs> to one of the parties. <laughs> I love that. Um, yes, that will be, let's make that our first topic today. It will be the discussion of advanced on costs. We will not only be discussing um, the institutional rules and the ad hoc rules, the institutional rules on um, the provision or the requests for advance on costs from the parties, but also what happens if a party does not pay. Um, although it is pretty streamlined that the case will be withdrawn, um, what happens next for the parties? And that's something that the Paris court has considered. Um, and then you and Joel, correct, have an interview for us. Absolutely. We have an interview with uh someone who's extremely interesting to speak about uh, the Dutch model BIT, which is, uh, I think we can use the word revolutionary. I think she would agree. Okay. She would like that. The newest, <laughs> the latest version of the Dutch model BIT uh, with uh, Dorieke. Um, and uh, she has worked on it for years. Um, and it's a really interesting uh, exchange that we have with her. So uh, that was a really good interview speaking about um, Dutch model BIT. Yes, I think that the Dutch model BIT has been kind of the front runner in change and um, mm -hmm. revision in these model BITs. So an excellent person to uh, to interview for that. And then finally, we will be revisiting the discussion of metaverse that we touched upon in an introduction in a previous episode. But I want to take it in a bit more detail, but still happy fun time about uh, the metaverse and its relation to making arbitration more autonomous. Um, and this comes from a speech from Julian Liu uh, from a while ago, but it's just been revisited by the Clue of Arbitration blog about how uh, the autonomous nature of arbitration that we this theory that we have perpetuated for a long time still finds itself connected to state interference and reliance on the national jurisdictions, courts and laws and rules and practices, and mm. um, whether the introduction of Web3, which I'll tell you about, and mm. the metaverse could help us break away to a truly autonomous regime. Um, I would like to point out, and I've just come across it, and shame on me since they started in the pandemic, but Reed Smith has come out with a podcast called Arbitral Insights, yep. um, and they've done a segment uh, with Sophie Knappert from Artec about oh. Metaverse. So if you want a more in-depth discussion from an expert, we are always championing other podcasts on this podcast, so they can refer to that segment. But this, we will stick to a happy, fun, light touch Perfect. as we do. Sophie that we had as a as a guest as well on our exactly. podcast about <laughs> other things. So perfect. Terrific. All right. Let's get started. So advance on costs, something that I've run into recently, especially with some clients that are not as pecunious as some large major corporations that they realize at the beginning of the arbitration that not only do they have to register and pay the registration fee, but they have to pay a significant amount of sums up front. Mm -hmm. So why are advance on costs paid? But 
These, well, these are basically uh, to ensure that there's enough money on account with an institution or with the tribunal to cover the likely administrative costs of the institution and the tribunal's fees and expenses, or in the event of Joel, a secretary, for example. <laughs> Um, so there's provisions under the different institutional rules for the advance on costs. So the ICC has a explicit, explicit provision in Article 37 that there's no specific time limit mentioned uh, by the ICC, ICC rules for the advancement of costs. But as soon as practical, practicable, the court shall fix the advance on costs. So after the payment of the filing fee by the claimant, the secretary general requests the claimant to make a payment called the provisional advance on costs. And then... The claimant is generally asked to pay that within a 30-day period. Um, consequently, the court will fix the full advance on costs, and they will then submit the uh, transmit the file to the arbitral tribunal as soon as they've been constituted, provided that the advance on costs have been paid. Similarly, under the Singapore International Arbitration Center (SIAC) um, in the 2016 rules, uh, under paragraph. Schedule 1, paragraph 12, it says parties shall pay upon request in advance on the estimated cost of the arbitration, as well as administrative fees and expenses uh, for the mediation or for the arbitration. Um, and they the London Court of International Arbitration also has a provision that says the LCIA court may direct the parties in such proportions and at such times as it thinks appropriate to make one or more payments to the LCIA in order to secure payment of the arbitration costs. Mm -hmm. So there's no specific time or installments for the payment of the advance on costs and the tribunal can call upon such payments as they deem fit. Um, that is unique. And I think that the LCIA is unique in how they um, present and ask for advance on costs because it can happen at, an, at a moment's notice based on how the tribunal has progressed. And I think the issue there is that the LCIA um, pays differently uh, to the tribunal and it's not just a basis like under the SEC rules um, where the um, advance on costs are determined based on the amount in dispute. Right. Um, so I've just gone through what the SEC requires. So the SEC requires at the initial stages of the arbitration that the parties pay in um, advance on costs. And there, in all of these rules, there are consequences if you um, don't pay in on them. Um, so before we go into those consequences, I'll just mention that the HKIAC has an article themselves as soon as practicable after the notice of arbitration. Um, they shall deposit an equal amounts for an advance on costs. Um, so the nature of these payments of the advance on costs, there's actually two different theories on how you're supposed to analyze this, whether it's under a contractual approach, mm -hmm. uh, meaning that it's further to the arbitration agreement that the parties are contractually obligated to follow the rules of procedure of the arbitration, which would include the payment of advance on costs so that they have a contractual obligation mm -hmm. to pay those costs, or whether it's a procedural approach, and that the obligation to uh, advance on costs does not give is does is does not arise from the party's agreement, but it arises from the institutional rules to which the parties have subjected themselves. So the obligation is towards the institution. Um, right. So there's it, it's an interesting. I only present that because you need to know who is bound, because usually both parties are bound to. Uh, bear these advance on costs in equal parts. Um, however, there are instances where a respondent will decide that for 
tactical reasons or financial reasons that it just doesn't want to pay. So there are um, what happens if the respondent doesn't pay, which is the most often scenario. And the first option would be the other side pays the, uh, the claimant pays. Exactly. <laughs> now, as I just said at the beginning, my client, the claimant is already struggling to pay his or her portion of the advance on costs and doesn't want to cover the respondent's portion of advance on costs. And then you're left with a party or both parties, because there is an obligation to either inter se or to the institution to pay these advance on costs that they are in default. Mm -hmm. And that gives rise to an interesting court judgment in the court of appeal in France. Yes. So on 9th of February, 2022, so a couple of weeks ago, the French Supreme Court held that a respondent party in arbitration cannot uh, sabotage proceedings uh, by refusing to pay its share of the advancement costs on the one hand, okay, mm -hmm. and then challenging jurisdiction of courts in favor of arbitration. Right. So you can't have both positions. It's not possible. Such behavior, uh, said the French Supreme Court, the Cour de Cassation, uh, constitutes a breach of the party's duty of procedural loyalty okay. and will prevent a successful jurisdictional challenge in favor of arbitration. Big deal. That is a big deal because I, I didn't really um, fully capture the magnitude of what would happen if a party is in default and advance on cause. Because I thought, I mean, and I knew that it started with the withdrawal of the claim. So if you're in default, the claimant will have to withdraw its claim. Or if the default only relates to the counterclaim from the respondent and the respondent has defaulted on that payment, then those counterclaims would be dismissed. Mm -hmm. But what happens to those claims? And in, in that case, the claims went to the domestic courts. Mm -hmm. um, and that that is where the, the the court found its jurisdiction over the claim. And that is why it is a conundrum to say that you're not going to pay for the procedure in arbitration, mm -hmm. but that you're going to enforce the procedure of arbitration in the domestic court. There was actually a case uh, in 2019 in the Dubai Court of Causation, and they dealt with a claim that was initially filed before the before DIAC. The court that, of what did you say? Excuse me? The Court of Causation? Yeah. C-A-S-S-A-T-I-O-N. I don't know. In French, we say cassation. That's why I'm like, what <laughs> Here we go. Put that sound bite in the intro, Jan. <laughs> I don't know if the Dubai court would use the French pronunciation. Uh, the French are everywhere. Okay, so. that's fine. Du the Dubai court of cassation. <laughs> Is that better? Yes, yeah, sounds okay. very French. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the claim was initially filed in DIAC. And the respondent also fired, filed a counterclaim, but neither party paid the advance on costs. So Diak closed the case file and considered both claims withdrawn. When the case was filed before the courts, the Court of Cassation decided that the arbitration clause was considered as non-existent since both mm. parties failed. And therefore, the claimant could only have recourse to the courts as they have the, quote, original jurisdiction to hear disputes. And in that case, the term original jurisdiction was stated to reflect the court's view that they are the default forum for hearing disputes and that arbitration is considered a deviation from this norm. Um, mm -hmm. So they're, they're considered an exceptional, uh, exceptional uh, remedy, mm -hmm. and it could only be done if the parties have agreed um, to submit to that case to arbitration and that 
the payment of the advance is an indication that they have continued their agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, so I guess this is what we see and what happens that if a party is in default, um, what can you do? And the first option is that you can take the court, uh, the case to the domestic court and fight it in domestic courts. Mm-hmm. Then you basically waive any rights to continue to arbitration and you just have a national court proceeding, which I don't know if it's necessarily reflecting the party's intention in the arbitration agreement, but that's the option you do have. Well, um, you have to be consistent pr- procedurally, right? In your position, mm-hmm. you can't just argue one thing before the arbitration tribunal and another thing before the courts. I guess that's the point, right? Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Another option is if you're, let's say it, you just have uh, the defaulting party being the respondent based on the advance on costs that have arisen from the counterclaims. So the advance on costs for the claims itself and the arbitration have been paid for. But the counterclaims, which raises raises the amount to dispute or the complexity of the arbitration causes the tribunal or the institution to request further advance on costs, and those costs haven't been paid. Well, a party can seek an interim measure that directs the defaulting party to either reimburse the share if the claimant Mm -hmm. decides to pay for that, or a procedural order um, saying that those claims should be dismissed. Um, Mm. So you can take some sort of interim procedural order or award um, resolving those matters in dispute. But it should be noted that if there is a withdrawal or dismissal of a case that is without prejudice from a party reinstating or reinstituting arbitration, so the claims are not foreclosed on. Mm -hmm. That was actually also a problem uh, before the French courts. I don't have the reference in front of my eyes, but I remember if it if it's linked to what you said, that there mm-hmm. was a case where um, the respondent did not pay its advance of costs, didn't have the money to do so, or just didn't pay, not because it was refusing arbitration, but just didn't pay. Um, and as a result, uh, I think it was an ICC case, the ICC um, struck down their counterclaims. Mm-hmm. because they didn't pay, you know? And if I'm not misquoting from my memory, mm-hmm. that um, award was annulled by the French courts. Oh, really? Yeah, it was annulled by the French courts because they said there was an unequal access to justice or something like that, if I'm not against uh, public policy. Well, that, so, that actually leads me to what I wanted to talk about because I... I think there is an access to justice issue in these advance on costs, mm. particularly when you deal with institutional rules that allow for such wide discretion as the LCIA or even DIAC, I believe, um, where they can set the advance on costs if and when they want to, and as many times as they want to, um, depending on the procedure. Um, I think there's, you know, I think it could definitely be done in intervals. I know that the, you know, the SEC establishes everything from the beginning um, and those advance on costs remain throughout unless there is some sort of further complexity and in which case the tribunal will ask for more, but there has to be some sort of event or instance that justifies the request for, mm-hmm. for further advance on costs. But if you're dealing with institutional rules that allow a tribunal to request advance on costs whenever it wants to, without scrutiny really by the parties, um, whether we are in entering into a dangerous zone of preventing access to justice for good faith claims. 
But then, you know, I, I'm going to be the advocate for uh, the other side, mm-hmm. the devil's advocate, if you want to call it. But um, you would say that you, by agreeing uh, to go to arbitration, you have agreed to a privatized form of justice. And the implicit agreement is that it is not free. Mm-hmm. So you have to pay. And the rules, you know, co- going back to your initial presentation which i thought was really interesting saying that is it a contractual thing or not mm-hmm. i would say yes because you've i mean of course depending on the case but my understanding is that you have agreed to the procedural rules to be applicable in the contract you've given consent to the application of those arbitration rules in, right. in your contact in your arbitration agreement basically it's a contract it's an agreement right yeah yeah And when you're filing the request for arbitration or the notice of arbitration, you do have access to the institutional rules and you know what your claim is going to be. So you can envisage and predict how much it's going to cost. Yeah, absolutely. So, so going back to the point of, is that a, you know, yes, it, it sounds like there's a problem of access of justice, obviously. But for, for people who don't, for people, for parties who don't have the means to pay for it, but that's mm-hmm. that's the cost of agreeing to privatize justice. Yeah. And right? I yes, and I think now looking at this Dubai case and the French case is it is it blocking justice, I guess is the the, the access to justice. Um is it preventing justice if you do have another remedy before the domestic courts. So if you have to withdraw your claim before the arbitration because you can't pay Mm-hmm. Um, t- typically, in most jurisdictions, the the domestic court could be much cheaper um, because it could be considered a public good and therefore quite cheap to to file. Unless um, it's in like Poland or Egypt or something, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> depending French. on the jurisdiction, I don't know. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. Um, that you that there is access somewhere, I guess. Um, but no, I think I think you're right. It, it is just a difficult pill to swallow, especially with this discretion point. And on that, I think we have Joel calling in. Oh my gosh, Joel. <laughs> Can't leave us be. What is that? Okay, let's listen to him. Hey guys, and best wishes from Rainy Marseille. When we're talking about advance on cost, I had another more detailed follow-up question for you. And that is, what happens when... The case is ad hoc and there's no institution involved. How do you set the advance on costs and to whom will the parties pay the advance on costs and how is it administered? I've, I've faced these questions when I've been a tribunal secretary a number of times, so I have some ideas on how to answer, but I'm going to go and have Bugabes with my wife now, so I leave it to you to, to deal with it. So Joel has a good point because what we haven't talked about and our previous guest who just who told us that ad hoc is much better than institutional arbitration that we need to consider what happens in ad hoc arbitration both if it's subject to the unsuchal rules but also if it's purely ad hoc mm-hmm. um, the unsuchal rules is kind of similar to what the lcia provides but it has article 43 the arbitral tribunal on its establishment may request the parties to deposit an equal amount as an advance for the costs referred to in article 40. Um, And during the course of the arbitral proceedings, the arbitral tribunal may request supplementary deposits from the parties. So here we have again, this 
Damocles' sword that the tribunal can come in at any moment. And I think the not the issue, but something to consider with ad hoc arbitration, particularly under the UNCTAD rules, is that there's a lot of unregulated um, elements to advance on costs that could come up um, that aren't included in the rules. For example, mm-hmm. the appointment of a secretary. Right. Um, a lot of this just comes under party agreement at, at the end of the day, and it could have cost implications and it could be something that the parties hadn't considered in moving forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I was part of one ad hoc and they they requested to, to appoint a secretary and the secretary was quite senior and so we knew it was going to be quite costly. Um, but you're kind of in a bind as a party, aren't you? When the tribunal makes a request to then deny that request, you yeah, have some course. hesitation in doing so. And like saying, no, we don't want a secretary because it's too expensive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then tribunal's like, okay, right. so you expect us to write the award? Like, what <laughs> exactly. do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, so. No, but that's a really good point because oftentimes, and I just had that discussion just last week with an in-house person. And um, there's this uh, just, you know, people discuss whether it would be potentially cheaper to go ad hoc mm-hmm. um and we've had this discussion before right it really depends on what kind of case we're talking about what kind of parties we're talking about because if it becomes very complex then it might end up being as expensive if not more expensive because you have the lawyers talking about which rules will apply mm-hmm. that have not been agreed beforehand by the parties right exactly. so there's all these exchanges as well Remember the cost of the proceedings. The number one cost is cost of lawyers. Us. Oh yeah. We're the most course. expensive people. <laughs> not the course. secretary. Not the tribunal. Us. No, that's no, it's true. true, right? We get to remind that. So that's true. <laughs> no, um, we're charging four million in fees, but like blame, <laughs> blaming it on the one hundred. I know all these conferences about cost. The lawyers are like, yes, so expensive. You're like, who's expensive? You are. You're expensive. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that is yeah. very true. <laughs> but um, so I just found out Magic of Google live mm-hmm. recording live the reference to the case I was mentioning before. Oh, okay, perfect. I don't know if it has been overturned. So if somebody, please, we will check that later after recording this. But it's the um, Cour de Cassation uh, case of 2013, Pirelli versus licensing projects, where um, it annulled an award on the basis of the respondent was deprived of its right to be heard slash access to justice because of non-payment of advance of fees. Interesting. Yeah. I have to look at that and what happened afterwards. But I remember that because I, I had talked about this beforehand, but it was a few years ago. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. There, the, yeah, there's a lot of defenses that the... <laughs> Another French court case that matters, Brian. Oh, this is a French episode. It is a French. French. That's (laughs) why we have to say cassation. That's right. (laughs) The Dubai court of cassation. (laughs) Okay. Well, on that, we'll we'll steer clear from France for a moment and let's go to the Netherlands. Maybe we should start with, uh, I was going to say, the, the beginning. There is a Dutch model BIT, obviously, but, but how, how did it come about and when? Because the Netherlands has a, a long history of investment treaties, as we all know, and going back to the genesis of this system. Uh, but at some point, you, you decided as a government to draft a model. When was that and, and why? 
Yeah, exactly uh, what you said. The Dutch gold standard is uh, pretty famous, I think. Right. Um, and has by now become pretty uh, obsolete. Um, the Dutch model BUT of 1997 was our core model. A couple of updates have been made since. There's been an updated model in 2004, but that has really been basically the latest model. Um, and I think the old model was quite traditional in a way. Um, I mean, what I said before, the Dutch gold standard consists of a pretty standard text, really. It's basically um, very investor-friendly in a way, it contains broad-based definitions. Um, it has quite unqualified standards of protection in terms of fair and equitable treatment, MFN, national treatment, but also expropriation. It was quite undefined in a way. Um, it also contains a, a broad umbrella clause and different um, several um, types of investment settlement dispute mechanisms. Um, so it was really kind of a, a lean and mean model, I would say. Also, if I uh, look back basically at the old treaties, they simply consisted of seven pages of um, quite open text. Um, and I think the model became a bit outdated in a way, um, particularly since 2014, the Netherlands has been in an ongoing process of uh, wanting to make well, amends basically to the old model. Um, and that reform was already triggered internally um, by um, also kind of a review and, and, and um, discussions in our parliament about the use of these treaties and whether they were still fit for purpose. Um, I mean, they were also, or they became seen as to be children of its time basically. Are they still necessary? Do we still need them? Do they really deliver what they were expected to, to do, basically? And I think that all was, else was kind of um, even reinforced by maybe some external circumstances. At the time, 2014, the EU was negotiating with the US, the uh, Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, so the TTIP negotiations, that also um, envisioned the inclusion of an investment chapter. Um, and we don't have any BRT at the moment with the United States or with Canada for that matter. So I think actually it became also um, triggered or basically back at the time, it triggered also the discussion whether we really need ISDS. Um, also because the US model and also Canadian model, they all were pretty far apart from the Dutch gold standard. And it was kind of the daunting task for TTIP negotiators to find a middle way and to kind of reconvene those two traditions together. Um, and in the end, I mean, uh, well, TTIP uh, didn't uh, see the daylight, but CETA did. Um, and that one is still pending in Parliament, whether it's uh, kind of delivered the result actually that the negotiators uh, had in mind. But for us, it really triggered also the discussion internally that we really have to revise the old model and uh, make steps basically to uh, make it uh, future-proof in a way um, and yeah, revise uh, the older model. Then before we turn to what came out in the end, then what does the process look like or what did it look like for the Netherlands? Because I guess it's different, of course, for, for each state. Uh, is this a sort of a, a bureaucratically driven process and to what extent do you look at input from experts and civil society and practicing lawyers etc 
Yeah, I think it was a combination of uh, everything you mentioned. It was truly a multi-dimensional process. On the one hand, it started as a really bureaucratic exercise. I started alone, basically, in the autumn of 2016. Um, and I actually also started quite low-key. Um, I mapped all the recent treaty developments up until then. Um, I made a list of all, all the parliamentarian resolutions that we had to incorporate in, uh, in the revised model, um, but also included communication we received from businesses, from law firms, from arbitrators in the field, from NGOs. And basically after this kind of internal study, I would say, um, I reached out actively myself to a lot of stakeholders. Um, so I started basically with international organizations, OECD, UN, UNCITRAL, WTO, but particularly actually colleagues of UNCTAD have been very, very useful and valuable in this process. I think we spent multiple days really brainstorming about the particular wording of the provisions that we uh, wanted to include. But I also reached out to scholars, to academics in the field. I mean, a lot of people have much more knowledge than I actually uh, in particular uh, topics, for example, on expropriation or finding credible treatment. I mean, there's been a lot of uh, studies done in the, in the past. And I think that um, there have been very, uh, well, there is very valuable research out there. Um, so I want to get in touch actually with those scholars and incorporate basically their latest thinking in the process. Um, and also the NGOs, businesses, everyone actually who has uh, or kind of might want to work basically with these BRTs were also consultants and uh, consultants in quite informally at that stage. Um, after that, actually, um, after collecting all these inputs and going back to the drafting process again, um, and again, going back to the mind map that I made and the article per article review, um, I felt that we kind of managed to have like one draft text that was up for an official consultation. So uh, whereas I did most of the work alone back then and kind of really reached out yeah, by my own initiative, basically, to all these organizations. After that, uh, after the text was officially a draft and it became like more uh, part of the official legislative process as it happens in the Netherlands, uh, all official laws need to be consulted in a public way. So we had like an internet consultation for two months. Um, and I think we received over 1600 uh, responses, basically. So it was quite much. Uh, we also impressive. held like some round tables. Yeah. yeah, it's impressive, right? I don't think the many laws and regulations actually that are being held. <laughs> and you had to combine all of these input and in, in, in terms of time frame, I think that's, sorry, sorry for cutting you off because I didn't think you were getting to that, but how long of a process was that? Well, the total process took almost two years, which is still quite quick, I think, because uh, what I said the first year was basically uh, quite a solitary experience where I did most of the thinking and uh, reached out a lot to kind of all the academics in the field. But that process was really quickly done considering the fact that how many academics, organizations, um, scholars, arbitrators, NGOs you want to consult in a, on an informal basis, that process actually went pretty quick, but then indeed the official consultations and also uh, the implementation of all the responses, the adaptations we, you needed to make. 
And after that, of course, there's also still kind of an interministerial process. So then after that, you still need to uh, consult with all the relevant ministries. In the end, it needs to be adopted by the Council of Ministers. And I think that bureaucratic process also took almost a year. So one year of fun and one year of uh, more official bureaucratic navigation <laughs> of the... Yeah. And of course, you mentioned all the different type of actors. And I imagine there were not just legal actors, right? Because you had a, a study you mentioned, even just the question of, do we need a BIT? Does it matter the impact it had? I imagine an economist did all those those studies. Is, is, is that correct? Yeah, there were economists. Also, uh, within the government, we have an, uh, a dedicated economic analysis bureau who did the research and helped actually uh, on this topic. Um, there are also some uh, legal advisory organs, officially of the, the Council of Ministers that gave their advice. We asked for scholars from University of Leiden, of University of Halle. Um, we also asked um, NGOs to put their, to give their input. Um, so I think it was truly a, a multidimensional process. And um, I really have the feeling that we have heard or at least have invited everyone who wanted to be heard to, to the process. And um, as a result, I, I think also um, if I look in the end to the end results, the text is also um, pretty different than what I uh, actually had in mind also as a first draft. So um most of the reactions have also found their way basically to the end product. So if we turn to the final product, then obviously we can Google and, and read and so can our listeners. It's not easy in a, in a podcast format to, to uh, go through text, but, but the, the elevator pitch, so the brief outline, I'm sure you've done this a couple of times at this point. So you're good at summarizing what we end up with. How, how does it differ from maybe your own expectations or the Dutch gold standard? If we take that as the starting point, well, starting from the Dutch gold standard, I think this new uh, model BIT is quite different in uh, in many ways. Um, I think the first big difference is that it explicitly aims to safeguard the right to regulate, um, and therefore it limits automatically the substantive scope of protection of for investors themselves. Um, this is not only done, I think, by the inclusion of the like a broader uh, introductory or interpretative position in, in Article 2 of the text, which is kind of a similar provision as in CETA, where the right to regulate is reconfirmed. But it is also reflected actually in the substantive scope of protection um, of most of the articles. So the fair and equitable treatment um, is adjusted, the expropriation clause is adjusted, the MFN is adjusted. So I think there have been many or many adjustments have been made basically to the text uh, eventually compared to the, the lean and mean uh, model of uh, 97 that we had. Um, also, I think a big difference also in making sure that um, uh, it, it prevents also abuse, particularly from investors. So that is also why it excludes um, non-substantial business activities so only investors with substantial business activities are covered actually under the BIT. Um, I think what is quite novel in our BIT is also that it not only contains rights for investors, um, but it also contains duties um, and not only duties for investors, but actually also for states. 
So it, on the one hand, incorporates uh, provisions on social corporate responsibility, um, but those mostly aim basically to, uh, are mostly directed basically to states themselves. Um, but it also reaffirms basically the obligation for investors to comply with national laws, with national human rights law, national labor law, national environmental law. Um, so that is quite new, I think. And particularly also the provision in Article 23, which enables a tribunal to take into account uh, non-compliance by the investor, basically, with some of the provisions. Um, lastly, uh, the other third new element, and one thing that I particularly like about the BAT is that it not only um, ensures investment protection, but it also needs, well, reflects the need basically for investment promotion. Um, so it's not only protection, um, as we've seen in the older BRT, but also um, clearly dedicated basically to attract investments and particularly responsible and sustainable investments. And we have to ask, what about arbitration? What or about arbitration? Yeah, or dispute resolution, I guess, more widely. What does that look like in the, in the new Dutch model? Yeah, that is still, of course, included. Um, it is still part, I mean, investment protection and dispute settlement is still part of the BIT. However, some adjustments have been made, um, particularly in Section 5. I mean, Section 5 is the complete section that is dedicated to dispute settlements. And the new model text moves a bit away, I think, from the older ones, um, particularly by removing the opportunity for arbitrators themselves, basically, to be appointed uh, or by the parties to the dispute. Um, the new system guarantees a bit of a midway. Uh, parties can choose the rules that apply. So you either choose UNCITRA or EXIT, but in the end, it's the appointing authority under EXIT or under the PCA that kind of uh, appoints all the members of the tribunal. And it's a bit of a hybrid system, a bit of uh, an in-between system. And I think also when the multilateral investment court uh, will see its light, um, this provision will become obsolete. Uh, but yeah, until then, basically, we have tried at least to move a bit away actually from the party appointment to a bit more of a neutral appointment. I, I'm curious about that uh, sort of forward-looking because there are things happening on the EU level, of course, as you as you mentioned. But what is what is the intention or the idea uh, about the usefulness of the model now? How do you think this will feed into the dynamics of future treaty negotiations? Is it more of a, should we say, a policy document intended to signal where the Netherlands would want to move, or will it be? used by by your government negotiators as sort of a, a template or a starting point with other states what what is the utility of the model um well i think it's it's actually um it's mostly so it will mostly serve basically as a template for negotiations i mean we're really set to revise and modernize the complete portfolio of bilateral investment treaties 
Um, however, of course, I mean, it takes two to tango always. So you need also to have a negotiation partner that is open uh, to discuss elements of these texts actually in, uh, in or, negotiations. Or it might be 40, so need, 47 or 48 or 49 to tango in the case of the ECT. 70, yeah, <laughs> 78. <laughs> we have 78 bilateral investment treaties and of course the ECT. But for the ECT, uh, we are uh, in a more uh, relaxed position or, I mean, depending on how you look at it. Uh, but for the ECT, it's the EU that negotiates, negotiates and tables a text mm-hmm. basically on behalf of all the EU countries, uh, EU member states. So, um, yeah, then apart from that, we have 78 uh, bilateral investment treaties um, with third countries. Uh, of course, we need to get approval actually to renegotiate them uh, from the European Commission. Um, at this moment, actually, we already took steps with Iraq, Ecuador, Burkina Faso, and Argentina uh, to have some preliminary discussions on uh, revising the existing BRTs. Um, however, I think due to COVID and also, frankly, uh, lack of interest by uh, the negotiation partners, we uh, haven't booked the successes that we wanted so far. Um, but I think, I mean, it is a model text. It signals that we, we are uh, honestly uh, hoping to revise uh, the complete portfolio, but it also signals a way, I think, uh, to the direction that investment policy making uh, should go in the future. And uh, the way, uh, hopefully, it, hopefully it leads the way also for other countries to follow our uh, example in a way. Well, one thing that particularly... <clears throat> Uh, inspired me <laughs> and that I have looked and uh, I, I thought was uh, was very innovative was the mention of women and diversity between men and women. And I don't think I've seen this in any other, I stand corrected, of course, in other BITs. The term woman, Jewel, because you're in minority right now, is mentioned five times uh, in the BIT. And I know you didn't want to go through the provisions of the BIT, but I cannot not refer to it. You know, I mean, even if you look at just Article 6 on sustainable development, 6.3, the contracting parties emphasize the important contribution by women to economic growth through their participation in economic activity, including international investment. The contracting parties commit to promote equal opportunities and participation for women and men in the economy. Where have you seen that other than in the Dutch model BIT is the question. And uh, so... um, I'd be interested to know, like, uh, has this clause u- been used in a, in, a, in a BIT following that model? No? No, actually, um, uh, this, is, this is actually one of the provisions that has been included uh, thanks to the lengthy consultation process. Um, and also because it's uh, gender, di- gender equality has been one of the core elements, I would say, of the Dutch foreign policies. So this one has been particularly included also after consultation with colleagues and with NGOs and um, really also goes back to the question, like what are investment treaties for? If we want them to attract, to promote and protect investments, they should also kind of attract the right type of investments and what type of investments do we want? Uh, we want investments that also enables and and kind of contributes to gender equality in a way. Um, so that is one of the provisions actually that has been added uh, in a bit in a later stage, uh, but indeed is quite new. And I think it's nowhere to be found uh, in any other BRT. Um, whereas for other provisions on, for example, on the 
promotion and facilitation of investments. I also look to other existing uh, BRTs and also newer BRTs. And particularly um, Brazil has a new model and India had a new model actually. And I think uh, most of the promotion uh, investment promotion parts basically come from those BRTs. Um, whereas other provisions, particularly um, on the substantive scope of investment protection, so the fair and equitable treatment, MFN, um, those have been largely expired or inspired by other BRTs. And I mostly looked at the Canadian one and US model um, and also incorporated some of the existing uh, jurisprudence in this, in this area. Um, so I think, yeah, uh, and, and some are also kind of new uh, inventions, Article 23, for example, where a tribunal can actually take into consideration um, non-compliance with, with UN uh, guiding principles, for example. That is really a provision that is also quite new, and I'm not sure, uh, but back then I think I couldn't find it in any other BOT. I wanted to to take advantage of the fact that you're speaking in a personal capacity and ask you a personal question uh, sure. to the extent you're comfortable answering it. Because now you, it sounds almost like you've written a mini PhD in, in preparing this model BIT and, and working so hard on it. And I also know that you work when the Netherlands is the respondent state in pending arbitrations. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on those two different roles as a, as a government employee in this sphere, both the treaty negotiation and the treaty research and preparing treaties, and at the same time also representing the government in pending disputes. I would imagine you've learned quite a few things that are helpful in, in the latter role from the former role, but, but I haven't myself, so I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, actually, I think uh, apart from the fact that it's quite necessary to keep your model BOT a bit up to date, I mean, I think it's frankly a good exercise also to prepare yourself well for uh, eventual disputes that uh, might come on your way. And uh, yeah, right now we are uh, facing our first two ISDS cases at the moment. Um, they are both centered actually and really come down to the question basically of whether there was a violation of the fair and equitable treatment provision or, and, or uh, expropriation clause. Um, doing all that research for the model BIT really gives you a good overview also of the latest jurisprudence in this field and actually it has proven to be a very valuable exercise in a way um, and has been yeah, proven also I think the law firms have been quite happy actually with the exercise we just did um, because we, uh, we can help them really as equal partners in, in the defense of our own uh, disputes at the moment The good so, and yeah, it's been unusual client to have that sort of substantive knowledge going into a dispute. Yeah, I'm also not sure if they always like it, you know, but uh, <laughs> it, it, yeah, it keeps us both sharp. So uh, it's, uh, it's very helpful. I have one final question because we've been dancing around it a little bit about the, the EU commission and uh, the sort of differences in competencies, depending on which type of treaties we're talking about. How was the process drafting the model BIT sort of coordinated with, I guess, the EU Commission on one hand and other EU member states on the other hand? Because obviously you guys work closely together in the UNCITRAL negotiations and the ECT modernizations. Do you talk to other EU member states? Do you talk to the EU Commission? 
Um, what's sort of the, the dynamic between the players there? I think it was actually quite a natural process. Um, I mean, in the end, we need authorization to conclude new BITs from the European Commission. So in the end, officially, you only need to have the approval um, at the end of the process. Um, however, of course, you don't want to end up with a text that uh, cannot be approved. So, of course, you make sure that uh, whatever you want to put in your model BIT can, can be approved by the European Commission. So I went back and forth quite organically um, throughout the process. And whenever we made a new adjustment to the text, uh, to the European Commission to make sure that uh, these provisions were aligned. Um, in the end, we didn't get any official approval, but um, that's also what I said. It's not necessary at this point. I think that the moment uh, we will start negotiating uh, really with, with, third party, with third countries actually on this text, um, they are, yeah, we will get their approval. And I'm pretty confident also because we mirrored quite some uh, provisions after CETA, for example, that we are actually in quite a similar legislative tradition uh, or treaty-making tradition as the European Commission at this moment. Um, and of course, we also sought input uh, of other member states. But frankly, to say back then, we were also one of the first, actually, that were really working on a new model BRT. Um, so uh, we're also happy now to share our experiences with other member states and help them in the process. Um, so therefore, it's also actually very helpful to be invited on uh, the arbitration station at this point. So we're happy also to go uh, in depth article by article, actually, if necessary, or help out uh, with whatever people need. Forgive my ignorance uh, if this is uh, available very easily, but uh, the research, the, all the research that has been done um, in in drafting and coming to uh, you know to the to, to the BIT as it exists uh, today, the model BIT is that is that accessible online? Um, is is there like a memoir of Doria K on how she uh, <laughs> she wrote the model BIT? Is, is is something like this available? I mean, just you know, I think it would be useful for other uh, states who are undergoing the same uh, process of, of reforming their treaty uh, around the world. Um, that's why I'm asking. Well, we have an official document available um, that explains the new uh, introductions we made um, in a new model BIT, but that is a bit more on, I would say, like a, a higher level. It's not really detailed. Uh, I do have all the research myself still, and I also have it here on my work computer. So me and my colleagues, actually, we can always actually help you out finding the exact nitty-gritty of the research that we did. Um, but yeah, uh, there is public information available, but that's more on uh, an aggregated level, I would say. And right. Okay. Also, uh, uh, I, I was actually uh, instructed not to make it too legal because actually also ordinary people had to understand it, the non-lawyers. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. um, but I have also the, the legal advice here and the legal research on my you yeah, may be opening Pandora's box now by inviting people to contact you directly <laughs> with questions. <laughs> yes. But I'm excited to talk about it. And actually, there has been a lot of thinking being done actually back in the days. I mean, it was a lot of internal discussions, a lot of research, a lot of debates. And actually, it was really helpful and also fun, basically, to 
share these uh, internal deliberations basically with other people. Um, you were ahead of the game in, in some ways there with Brazil and India and the Netherlands for a long time, those were the like relatively recent model BITs. And now we know that many states are currently planning to or already undergoing the same exercise. Yeah, and it's also a bit what I said before, right? I mean, the older BITs were really back in the days kind of very novel and quite that uh, they fitted really their time, right? In a, in a post-Cold War era where we all had more uh, kind of a moving glo- towards globalization and really kind of constructing this neoliberal economic order. There, these lean and mean treaties actually worked, but now we're 20 years along basically and now we see a different world order and now I think it also makes sense to kind of revise the older treaties in a way that is much more fit for today's world actually. Thank you so much for taking the time and talking to us. This was a fast half hour <laughs> flew by. Very fast. Yeah. Yes, and thank I, you very much. I'm and sure again, we'll be in touch again for more details. <laughs> At least I will be. <laughs> yeah, you're more than welcome. Also, actually, I get pretty excited also to talk article uh, by article. So please send me all your questions and we can even do uh, a next interview on a, on a specific article if you want. Or I'm open to uh, happy to talk actually <laughs> about all the work that we've done. Uh, and hopefully it can inspire uh, people Um or maybe put them in a different direction. I mean, <laughs> so most of the BRT has been written. You know that most of the BRT has been written at home in a, at a time pre-COVID, and also mostly in the night when I had the time to focus and the creative juices were flowing. It's kind of a very good kind of. Nice that's fun a, that, fact, you know. That sounds exactly <laughs> like a PhD in my experience, actually. I'm going to run with that analogy because yeah. that sounds exactly like yeah. writing a big project or a book. Well, or any yeah. good piece of writing, like any yeah. any Probably. novel, or I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that's also actually why I'm so grateful also for my boss. He gave me basically, I think, three times a week off to fully dedicate myself uh, to the new model text. So he also said like, if you want actually to have the freedom to do research, please uh, take a a week off. And uh, as long as you come back with results at the end of the week, I'm happy. And uh, that was actually a really good way to also uh, make sure that you really get to the drafting because it's so difficult to focus if you're overwhelmed with kind of daily in between stuff that we're all dealing with. Yes, could not agree more. We are now entering the metaverse for happy fun time where you will have to pay for your beer or champagne with a (laughs) non-fungible token. (laughs) And you'll have to wear goggles to see us. Um, So we are seeing more and more talked about in the metaverse. And as we said before, we cannot be the old people left in the dust. And we need to at least spark a happy fun time topic to discuss what is actually happening in the metaverse and what are we going to be faced with as council potentially in any future disputes or advice um, to be provided to to our clients. Um, As I said in the introduction, Um, There was a discussion by Julia Liu, a a speech in 2005 about 
how the metaverse kind of contradicts or enlightens this theory of autonomous arbitration. And we all know that there is this underlying theory that we like to say that arbitration is this autonomous, private, supranational, in some cases, in investment arbitration, dispute resolution mechanism. Um, however, as we all know, especially in the recognition and enforcement stages or in an aid of arbitration, we are constantly interacting with um, national rules, practices, and national laws and the domestic courts. So we cannot be fully untethered from the national jurisdictions, even though we are in international arbitration. Now, with the introduction of blockchain technology and the metaverse, we can see a way for us to become fully autonomous. And one way which I want to present to you, Sadia, has to do mm. with the enforcement. Because let's say we talk about um, advance on costs, for example, mm -hmm. um, although money can be paid on account, um, in the metaverse, you have all of your non-fungible tokens, for example, or any other tokens you hold exist on the blockchain. Right. Um, so enforcement becomes accessing those smart contracts that are on the blockchain, which are tied to your assets or, or actual investments. And okay. therefore, you could have almost an automatic enforcement without any domestic court and without any sort of centralized organization or institution to monitor enforcement. And that basically, when you leave the arbitration with the award, you can just sign on to your blockchain and mm -hmm. access the wallet, transfer the non-fungible tokens or your Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency, and you can have immediate enforcement without any issues. Really? Yes. That's incredible. Well, consent yeah. will have to be given, of course. It's, it consent is a, has to be given. Okay. Yes, so you can't steal. Do. You can't steal the blockchain uh, technology. You can't steal <laughs> the smart contracts. But you will have, for example, let's say a party wants to do an advance on costs. For example, they can show on the blockchain uh, that they they can either transfer it to a custody custodial wallet that can be held yeah. by the tribunal. Or they can give an address to the tribunal where a party can backtrace the amount of assets that are held on the personal wallets. Okay. Um, so they can see how much, how many assets that a party holds. So they they don't actually have to pay in an advance on costs, but they can show proof of assets, for example. Right. Um, or for security for costs, for example, if you're just trying to see if you know a party can pay its costs, you don't have to put up your your family residential home as, as security, as security, you, can, you just put your smart contract, just put your security. smart contract as, right. uh, as part of the metaverse. So I think that, um, we enforcement is going to be one way we see that. Nothing. That's, that's a really good point. Uh, another way we may see in this issue, and I don't know how we're going to completely untether it. And it does have to do with assets, but it's has to do with ownership of virtual assets. And I think ownership rights are going to be a dispute that we see. And I think that that is going to be regulated by some decentralized organization. Mm -hmm. um, and so ownership will not be the property laws of a domestic jurisdiction, but it will be ownership as defined by the metaverse or some decentralized agency. Do you think there's going to be a metaverse tribunal? Yes. Sort of appeal, the metaverse court de cassation? <laughs> <laughs> it could have its own well it's, yeah, especially it if you're having i know that in dubai they're starting a whole crypto court they're calling it um and it's so, a, okay a crypto court so the 
but it's based in Dubai, but it's specifically for cryptocurrencies. Exactly. So it's not exactly what you're talking about, but it is going in that direction where you just need to have a a tribunal or a group of judges that are competent in this type of law, especially when it's unregulated in most jurisdictions. Yeah, Um, yeah. So the metaverse will be the top seat of arbitration in like two years from now. Imagine. Yeah. But then the question is, how do you get, um, you know, disclosure assistance by the national court where the documents, for example, are held and and the evidence. Maybe the documents are held in the metaverse. (laughs) (laughs) I like where your mind is going. But I think, so, you know, the, what we currently have is what they call web 2.0. So everything is based on this, you know, social media and e-commerce. It's all based on privately owned mm-hmm. um, web 2.0, but web 3.0 um, will be in the metaverse where everything is controlled within the metaverse and it's all decentralized. So there's no ownership of the e-commerce itself, right? So your e-commerce site has to be hosted by web 2.0 and so you're basically you're being hosted by some third-party organization whereas here everybody owns their own involvement in the metaverse what do you mean by that though that you own your own that there is no centralized organization or company that is going to be the owning this commerce Mm -hmm. um you are in charge of your non-fungible token, which is mm-hmm. not only what you wear and what you look like in the metaverse, but it's also mm-hmm. what you can trade and sell. Mm-hmm. And okay. that's all on the blockchain. So there's no ownership of right. any of these rights. It's all individual ownership. Right. Okay. So it's all decentralized. Mm. Do you think that's going to change in the future? The Whether thing? it will be centralized? Yeah. Whether there will be some kind of regulation. Yes, because I think that unfortunately we have to think of as disputes lawyers, what happens in the case of problems, theft, right? Um, So they're neat. And I was talking to a cybersecurity expert about this and they, and I was looking to, I think I mentioned in the previous podcast about potentially investing in the metaverse and buying land in the metaverse. Right, 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 right. And this um, expert said it's possible and it is on the rise. And of course, it looks like a great investment, but because it isn't regulated and because it is decentralized, it is prone to hacking. Um, Uh, And hacking is going to be a huge dispute industry Mm -hmm. that we see. Um, And unfortunately, I presume you and I definitely know that I know nothing about that Mm. or how that works or how to hack or what kind of safeguards an owner has to put in place in order to combat against hacking. Mm -hmm. I think these will be a specific type type of dispute that we'll potentially be seeing. Should we ask the ICC to create like a task force on on the metaverse? Actually. (laughs) They have? No. They have already? Oh, okay. Listen to us. Do it. (laughs) We'll at them on Twitter and, and make sure that they know. Yeah. But I think, um, and this I refer again to the to Arbitral Insights uh, with Sophie Knappert. Um, it's a Reed Smith podcast because she goes into kind of the, the specific um, disputes that arbitration will be seeing. Right. Definitely uh, arising out of this. Um, it is interesting. Yeah. Can't wait to see what kind of disputes will, will arise out of this. I think already some disputes are arising out of the metaverse, no? 
I think so. Maybe. But. Definitely. And it is, it, uh, you know, as of now, it will be contract based or, you know, criminal mm-hmm. theft at this point. But soon there's going to be, you know, companies. Well, because that- you're saying you have to buy, you still um, the non-fungible. Sorry, my my. <laughs> My understanding of this whole world is even much lower than than you you have so far. When you purchase a non fungible token, you purchase it, right? So there is a sales agreement. Mm-hmm. Do you buy like clothes and your face? Uh huh. Like okay. So and those what, are even considered tokens because you can sell your clothes. Right. Okay. So that's governed by a contract, supposedly. That is subject to some kind of a dispute resolution clause and so on and so forth. Well, I, I, I think it's all on the blockchain. Oh, okay. Understood. All right. So there isn't really a dispute resolution mechanism because it can be immediately assessed and assigned. Okay. Um, and so there isn't like, you know, you go to a store or you, you go to some oil field and you're expecting 10,000 mm-hmm. barrels of oil and you only get 9,000 mm-hmm. and there's a dispute on how it was manufactured. Whereas this mm-hmm. is so automatic Mm-hmm. and just represented before you and it's all on the blockchain and they can source everything that it's an immediate access and enforcement of. So it's that it's a smart contract instead of okay. I want to buy your Gucci bag NFT. Right. And let's meet in person or send an email with a contract. Okay. Okay. Because the contracts on the blockchain is on the blockchain. Okay. Very interesting. Yeah. We definitely, I think have to have multiple other segments on <laughs> Yeah. On this topic. These are two <laughs> chickens with their head cut off trying to run yeah. around this. Topic. I think next time at some point we need to record ourselves in the metaverse as well. That would be fun. I think we should have an episode on the metaverse. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for indulging me in my completely thank you, Brian. curiosity. That was very interesting. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you, Jan Kunster, Joel Dalquist. Thanks, we Joel, you. for dialing in. And tweet at us at the ARB station or email us at the arbitration station at gmail.com. We love hearing your comments and questions and concerns. Keep that coming. Keep, Keep them, them coming. coming. Thank you.